You are listening to the Art Crime Podcast with Mara and Baker. This is how we do it. <laughs> this is how we podcast, baby. Mm-hmm. Romania, are you ready to podcast? Romania? I said Germany, are you ready to podcast? What? Hey, Italy, are you ready to podcast? What? Hey, France, are you ready to podcast? What? Dominican Republic, are you ready to podcast? Oh. Russia, are you ready to podcast? What? Kenya, are you ready to podcast? Huh? Poland, New Zealand, South Korea, Canada, Ireland, Netherlands too, UK, United States, are you ready to podcast? Shut the front door. I just zipped through that. I thought it was getting a little much, but that's pretty good, right? A Romania. Yeah, jeez. Norway, you're always number one in our hearts. Oh, Don't you Norway. forget it. Norway, giving you the heart sign. Whether you're a boy or a girl, you're number one. Throat singing, also called overtone singing, a range of singing styles in which a single vocalist sounds more than one pitch simultaneously by reinforcing certain harmonics. Uh, in parentheses, overtones and undertones. In some styles, harmonic melodies are sounded above a fundamental vocal drone. So maybe I'm not doing throat, throat singing. If I'm, sim- you're supposed to have more than one pitch simultaneously by reinforcing certain harmonics. How do you do that? Does this sound like more than one pitch when I go? I have no idea, but it does seem like throat singing to me. Good enough for me. I think I could fool somebody. Be like, oh, yeah, you should start telling people that. That's an interesting factoid about me. Maybe you should me. start a YouTube channel and people can subscribe and you can, uh, like some people whisper, you could just, you know, throat sing on demand. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And then give like, out your tips that you like oh, to give out. Throat singing ASMR mm-hmm. would be great. Yeah. Like making, like teaching people how to make an omelet. Yeah, and like First things you can do with kimchi. <laughs> First, you want to crack your eggs into a vessel of some kind. (laughs) Ramen hacks. I would suggest you whip the eggs with a lightly beaten with a fork. Don't put any salt or pepper in the mix. (laughs) (laughs) Is this a thing? I think it's a thing. I I think it does appeal to a certain demographic, yes. Uh... She's a lady on her couch, knitting away. Hey, lady on your couch, knitting away. That's my audience for throat singing, is a lady on the couch knitting away? I think it's like a lady who's like maybe into some kink, but she can't admit it. But occasionally she looks stuff up on YouTube and you seem safe. So it's like your pants are on and stuff, but she's kind of getting off on it. All right. I'm cool with that. If I can be that to her, it's the least I can do. Yeah. Do you think it would be off-putting if I if I added sound effects, or like in the earlier, like "Are you ready for some podcast?" Like the the official theme song. <laughs> Are you ready for some podcast? You want to add sound effects? Like if I well no if I added Garage Band layers like mu- like beats, you know. Oh, I thought you were gonna throat sing. I was like, I don't know if you should throat sing in it. No, we've had enough of that today. Okay. Maybe I'll try to, if I have time, maybe I'll try to throw some sound effects over some sections in episode eight. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can tell me if it works. Like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. No, not not like that. Oh, uh, <laughs> what's the what's the scream? The important Hollywood scream. The Wilhelm scream. Yeah, <laughs> I can't do it. It's something like that. No, I I meant more like um, like when we get to the news section, 
we can pretend that there's like a wheel we're spinning and be like, okay, I have five news items. Hamster one through wheel. five. You know that hamster in a wheel? Oh. Like a like a wheel of fortune wheel. Like a game okay. of life wheel. Oh, remember the game of life wheel? Yeah. That was a good wheel. I didn't like that game. It was a terrible game. It was a dumb like, game. I don't want all these children falling out of my car. Why Why are there so many children in my why car? Why don't they have arms and legs? They're just little heads. It was just gross. Disgusting. Yeah. But I did like the wheel because then you could play, you could like play roulette with your friends and the money and just be like, all right, Straight all right. to gambling with you, always. Yeah. Yep. Bypass the directions involved with learning how to play mm. the game of life. Mm-hmm. Um, I once talked a friend into paying me for roller skating lessons. I, <gasps> I got in trouble for that. Ooh. I didn't charge much. It was minimal. I think it was like quarter or 50 cents because I was that's a better a skater than she was. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, that's a great bargain. idea. My mom thought it was terrible. I've always been trying me? to monetize my skills. What kind of... That's that's 100% American. Mm. You did you did all the right things. And 25 cents is a bargain, even back then. Yep. What could you get for 25 cents? I think I used to get base, packs of baseball cards for 35 cents. And that was a long time ago. But like that that was like how I measured the cost of everything, is like how many <laughs> packs of baseball cards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, episode eight... Uh, hey everybody, are you ready for some podcast? <laughs> <laughs> As always, let's begin with a lively conversation about the artist. Johannes Vermeer, born in Delft, Holland, 1632 and died in 1675. Relatively little is known about Vermeer's life. He seems to have been exclusively devoted to his art. The only sources of information are some registers, a few official documents, and comments by other artists. His father, Rainer Janzun, was a middle-class silk worker who in 1631 started to deal in paintings. When Vermeer's father died in 1652, Vermeer himself took up being a merchant of paintings. In 1653, Vermeer married a Catholic woman, Katharina Bonus, in a nearby village called Schipruiden. For Vermeer, it was a good match. His mother-in-law, Maria Thins, was a significantly wealthy woman. At some point, the couple moved in with Katarina's mother. Vermeer lived there for the rest of his life, producing paintings in the front room on the second floor. Did you hear, did you, do you, do you know? Do you even know? Did you even know about um, his mother-in-law um, and the relationship she had with her husband and her son? Oh, buddy. It is... No. Cruelty and misogyny all the way down. Yeah, no. Her, um, so Katarina's father was horrendously abusive. And some of the only reason that they know anything about Vermeer and Katarina is because of court documents and police documents where neighbors um, were testifying about the, um, how openly terrible he was to Katarina and turned his own son against <gasps> his mother as well. Wow. His own son later in life would come back and try to attack Vermeer's wife and would wind up in jail for the rest of his life. That is disgusting. It was awful and dark. And she did not, she was not a Vermeer fan at first. And I don't know why she would be a fan of any man, you know, and let alone one that uh, wanted her daughter's hand. Um, she would later come to trust him um, and have him be involved in in the family business so to speak so that apparently there was trust but um it was uh it was dark it was it was very very sad 
Well, Vermeer must have been all right because he was invited to live in her big house. She did have money and it was a nice big house. And Vermeer and his wife gave birth to 14 children. I didn't read that part. That's too many kids. Back to Vermeer's life, his professional career. It is not certain where Vermeer was apprenticed as a painter, nor with whom. It is generally believed that he studied in his hometown. It is possible he taught himself or had information from one of his father's connections, because they were, you know, paint merchants, painting merchants. On December 29th, 1653, Vermeer became a member of the Guild of St. Luke, a trade association for painters. The Guild's records make clear Vermeer did not pay the usual admission fee, a hint that his financial circumstances were difficult. In 1657, he might have found a patron in the local art collector, Peter von Ribben, who lent him some money. In 1662, Vermeer was elected head of the guild and was re-elected 1663, 1670, 1671, evidence that he was considered an established craftsman among his peers. In 1672, a severe economic downturn, known as the Year of Disaster, struck the Netherlands. Not only did a French army under Louis XIV invade the Dutch Republic from the south, known as the Franco-Dutch War, but an English fleet in the Third Anglo-Dutch War and two allied German bishops attacked the country from the east. What I just learned this week was that back in the day, they would flood the country when invaders started to come in. Oh. And which is, sounds really rad because they're like two meters below sea yeah. level. So they can like destroy their own floodgates or whatever. I don't know what kind of turn back <laughs> Of the floodgates or yeah. turn on or, uh, and then flood the country. And that, that really busted the, uh, um, Vermeer family or, or Vermeer's mother-in-law's family. They, they came from, or her family came from money and I can't remember what town. It might've been that, that Kurt Loder town. Kurt Loder, is that what you said? <laughs> Kurt Loder. Oh, I'm wow. Kurt Loder. This is MTV News. Today, right, right. Vermeer and his wife were oh. flooded out of house and home as the, country opened the floodgates to try to stop or something like Uda that and ah, that's the house i don't know that was a real that that crushed the family fortune right there boom all the money that uh mother-in-law had oh boy uh washed away in the uh the flood by design in order to try to uh to impede the the french wow yeah disastrous yeah Many people panicked, and shops and schools were closed. Some years passed before circumstances improved. The collapse of the art market damaged Vermeer's business as both a painter and an art dealer, as his wife stated later. With a large family to support, Vermeer again was forced to borrow money. In December 1675, Vermeer fell into a frenzy and died within a day and a half. In a written document, Katerina Bolness attributed her husband's death to the stress of financial pressures. She, having to raise 11 children, which she underlined in her testimony, asked the high court to allow her a break in paying creditors. The Dutch microscopist, Antony van Leeuwenhoek, who I remember from middle school biology. Get out of here. Yeah. Look at your brain. Well, yeah. Who sometimes worked for the city council was appointed trustee. The house, the eight rooms on the first floor, was filled with paintings, drawings, clothes. So in his atelier, there were among rummage, not worthy being itemized, two chairs, two painter's easels. Oh, I want the easel. 
three pallets, 10 canvases, a desk, an oak pull table, and a small wooden cupboard with drawers. I want all of it. 19 of Vermeer's paintings were bequeathed to his wife and her mother. Katarina sold two more paintings to the baker in order to pay off the debts. In Delft, Vermeer had been a respected artist, but he was almost unknown outside his hometown. And the fact that a local patron, Van Riven, purchased much of his output reduced the possibility of his fame spreading. Vermeer never had any pupils, and his relatively short life, the demands of separate careers, and his extraordinary precision as a painter all helped to explain his limited output. We only know of about 36 paintings. As a baker myself, I'd like to thank uh, uh, Vermeer's wife for paying her debts to the bakers. Exactly. Yeah. All of his paintings are pretty much beyond being priced like there's so few of them they're all so highly regarded you know multi-millions maybe more for any given painting and you know he he died because of financial duress and the painting we're going to talk about today is described as ireland's most valuable painting and it's kind of priceless so it's just what interests me most about vermeer's circumstances with the patron is that from an artist point of view at the time he was really set up nicely. Like he hardly, there's no, I don't know if there's any known portraits of him or he painted himself into some paintings, but there's no, like he didn't do self-portraits like Rembrandt did, for example. And Rembrandt and other Dutch artists did a lot of portraits as their calling cards and that's how they made money and stuff like that. And Rembrandt didn't have to do any of that because he had a patron. And so the art that he uh, produced on his own that would not ultimately be sold to the, to the patron it could be kind of anything he wants. So from from a freedom of artistic expression standpoint, Vermeer was in a great position. He had a patron paying for his art. He could paint what he want. He wasn't he had a big house to paint in. Yeah, he had a he had an in law. I mean, I, Rembrandt uh, married into money too, but I think he spent it all. Like he was a disaster. So Vermeer, from a from an artist standpoint, seemed like he was in a really great cush spot. But then, you know, the circumstances of history and um, and abuse in his, his wife's family and all of those things was just a, a crushing burden, I'm sure, for all of them. Um, and really just, man, you know, to, to have to be in such a nice position as an artist and just have the world kind of collapsing around you on a regular basis. Yeah. It's just what a bummer. Couldn't recover at all. All right. So before we get into the the painting, the focus of our crime this week. Uh, Let's jump into the news a little bit because there's been a lot of news and really good news, like a follow-up to a previous episode where a painting was stolen in New Zealand and has now been recovered. Woohoo! Hooray! Well done, everyone involved. And so uh, if you want to follow along, you can always check the show notes in the podcast details or go to artcrime.blog and look for show notes there. Easy enough, I promise. So uh, several episodes back, we talked about a Goldie painting stolen in Hamilton burglary. Hamilton is in New Zealand. Goldie is the name of the painter. He was known for doing uh, some unbelievably beautiful oil paintings of Maori people. And they are very precious. And the most recent one that went to auction was went for about half a million dollars. And, and it was still, I mean, it's probably been gone for almost two months now, I think. This is one of the first... It was one of the first uh, thefts in the news that we reported on yeah. here, and it has been recovered. There's not there has been a lot of news on the facts of the recovery, and maybe that's just part of the case or whatever. Yeah. So they can't reveal a lot going into any litigation. 
but it's been found and returned to the owner, and that's very exciting. Hooray. It is exciting. <laughs> uh, so that's news. Uh, sound effects. <laughs> sound effects, everyone. Uh, I, I have an air horn app on my phone, but I didn't bring the phone in here. Um, uh, all right, so next piece. Of, see, this is where I want the sound effect for like the make it sound like it's interactive where you can say, okay, let's uh, pick what, what, what news is it's going to be. Let's spin the wheel. And then we'll go like tick, 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 bing. Okay. Ah, judge rules that Kuhn, Center Pompidou, oh, Frank Davidovici, 190,000 euros for copyright infringement. Oh. Jeff Kuhn's, who I think would arguably be best known to most people for his sculptures that look like balloon animals, like mylar balloon animals of all yes. different shapes and sizes. Mm-hmm. That's how I think, you know, just the short code for your little file card on Jeff Koons, that guy. Uh, so he he has, uh, he had a series called The Banality of Life, I think it was called. Let's say The Banality of Life. He was taking advertisements and just what he felt were the banality of life and then recreating them as sculpture. He's he's gone to court at least four times for this series in the banality of life. That's a lot. Because what you can't do, what you can't do is you can't just go to a photo you find or an advertisement and then recreate that exact advertisement as a sculpture or as another piece of work based on that. Oh. So it's unless you're doing it to satire the subject of the painting or the, the the characters in the painting, for example. So it's not like a remix. It's not a parody. Um, and it's just a copy, basically. Right. And so they don't have the fair, same fair use laws in France that we do in the U.S. He did win one in the U.S. where he was only kind of using the bottom part of a photo in an advertisement of ladies' ankles and, and feet. Um, he, he was cleared on that one because I don't think there was enough, there wasn't enough reference to the original itself to merit that it was an exact copy that he was going to profit off of. So let's talk about the, the most recent case he lost. Fit de Ver, am I saying that right? Yes. F-A-I-T, apostrophe H-I-V-E-R, by U.S. artist Jeff Koons at Christie's Auction House is seen before going on sale for an estimated four to six million U.S., in November of 2007. So this sculpture is based on a advertisement from 1985. And you can see it's a it's a it's a woman lying in the snow on her back. There is a a pig approaching her head from behind her. The pig is wearing like a rum bar- barrel around his neck. Um and so he he basically did an exact replica of that except he added a penguin and then he looks like he put a a, a flowered um necklace on the pig. What was the original ad for? Uh, it doesn't matter. Okay. Who, who could possibly know? I, I it's certainly a, it's can't a, tell. It's a, is it a French ad? While Kuntz made a few alterations, like the addition of two penguins, and swapping out the fur jacket for a mesh top, this sculpture does seem to mimic the photo, t- photo taken by um, Davidovici just a few years earlier. So Davidovici first sued Kuntz in the Parisian Museum the Pompidou in 2015 and 18. A judge ruled that the artist museum violated copyright laws and owed Davidovici um, 135,000 U.S. However, the artist museum appealed the ruling, which has now been upheld, and their monetary penalty was increased. <laughs> so, dude, you can't you well, can't do that. Yeah. Like if you're going to take an image and you're going to satire it, satirize it, or you're going to really um, you know, kind of mark it up or make the subject of the of the painting 
the source of the comment that you're making or something like that, then then at least in the U.S., uh, fair use or, or satire or parody would apply. But his stuff is just straight up sculpt sculpture versions. Yeah, it's exact. Yeah. Yeah. And he did another one. Another case he lost was, um, I think it was called The Puppies. And um, it was it's a couple sitting on a bench and they're covered in puppies and it was an actual photo. And then he just brought the photo to one of his sculptors because he apparently doesn't do a lot of the actual sculpting himself. He kind of has like a Here's a, an idea. Team. Copy this photo. Yep. And um, and so, yeah, so you can't do that. Can't do it, everybody. Whether no. you're Jeff Koontz or you're at home, uh, you, you shouldn't do that. You should try to avoid it. Yeah. Living artists will notice. Spinning the wheel again. Oh, we're going to go to another throwback. Uh, it was not too long ago that I said that Rembrandt reminded me of Jason Manzukis. Yes. At least one of the photos. If you go to Wikipedia and you look for Rembrandt, I think the, the, the default photo for Rembrandt looks a lot like actor Jason Manzukis, who is hilarious. Um, and he was he was on Seth Meyers this week. So again, all, all the links will be in show notes. I think, I think you'll really enjoy this. So Seth is uh, interviewing him and noticing that Jason Manzukis has, has some very uh, interesting art in the background, some interesting portraits. Yeah. And he lives alone, and he's. Uh, it sounds like he's maybe losing his mind a little bit. <laughs> One of the activities he's enjoyed is going to eBay and finding paintings that he really enjoys, <laughs> and and bidding and winning on these items. Yeah. And um, look at that portrait. <laughs> that woman in a stripy shirt. They're really something. And he Why goes, does that look familiar? She looks familiar. I don't know. Like yeah, maybe it was like a reproduction. Oh, oh, that's a good point. It could be from a movie or. Maybe it was like a reproduction that, uh, that like an amateur that artist. Like that Plachette woman, a poor poor portrait of what's her name? Suzanne Plachette. Plachette. <laughs> wow, we're going way back here. All right, next news item. I'm chock full of news. Did you know about this? You might know about this. You're a National Archives person, formerly. Citizen Archivist Missions. Ready to start tagging and transcribing? Uh, we've curated these topical missions to help you jump in and contribute. Click on a topic that interests you, and it'll bring you right to the historical records in our catalog. Tagging and transcribing makes the records more accessible to everyone. So you can legit just jump in here to archives.gov and help transcribe a bunch of historic documents and tag them. Ooh, so who's checking everyone's work? That's Somebody? What I know. Interns, probably? I hope so, yeah. Uh, otherwise, I've... you can get a lot of banana hands. Banana, banana hands. hands. Hey, everybody, watch what you're typing with those banana hands. Yeah. <laughs> this is a very yes and improv kind of show, so I, I don't want to stop us from singing about banana hands. I just don't know where we're going with it. So, yeah, so if you if you feel compelled uh, to contribute to documenting our uh, history, uh, the, the link will be on ourcrime.blog. All right, uh, this was a breaking news, and this is another follow-up item. Mysterious message on the screen was written by Edvard Munch himself, experts reveal. This was big news this week, where apparently, I, I, I didn't know this during the Munch episode that we did, but I guess it's been known for a while that there was, um, that uh, the words could only have been painted by a madman in Norwegian, were scribbled into the painting in like the upper left-hand side or something like I that. I did not come across that. No, I didn't either. Yeah. So it's just for years, curators and art historians have wondered who wrote it, and now they've done some infrared scans. Infra, now they've done some infrared scans, uh, which don't impact the painting, but they compared the sentence to all of Monk's letters and tried to do some handwriting analysis, and they're convinced it's absolutely him. So 
And it, this just makes it, so ever since we did the Monk episode on the Scream, I just look at it a lot more differently now. And like, yes. it, 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 having having it be like a hilarious symbol on like I have a band aid box that has the scream on it. It's yeah. like uh, it's like I, some. I gave you those for your birthday. <laughs> yeah, and and every time I look at it, I just see like a man with like crippling anxiety yes. and like mental illness. That was a really great gift for you. I'm I was really thoughtful with it. <laughs> <laughs> every time you use a band aid, you yeah, can think about think crippling about mental illness. Crippling mental illness. <laughs> Which is what Aww. the scream has become. Like, well, I, yeah. when you gave me it, I didn't, no. I didn't really perceive it that way. And I, I, I did mean it that way, but no, I'm glad you didn't see it. That way. <laughs> it was like a slow. It was like a. It was like a grenade joke gift. Yeah, it's like, like like slow burn over a decade. He'll get it one day. Someday he'll realize that. Yeah. He is the scream. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And that'll teach him. <laughs> lesson dealt everyone so yeah so uh the the fact that it's in the public domain and that anybody can use the photo for whatever hilarious purposes they want is i don't know i don't it kind of bums me out now it makes me a little sad why are we laughing so much sorry it's the pain that makes us giggle it was okay <laughs> uh all right and then finally how am i going to pivot to this Whew. <laughs> Casey Kasem doesn't like the pivot. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is a real Casey Kasem moment. I can't make jokes about mental in- illness and then go into a goddamn obituary. <laughs> <laughs> I can't make mental illness jokes and then start talking about a guy who just died. Who wrote this? Yeah, it's in poor taste. You should be careful. And finally, in the news, uh, we would be out of our freaking minds. If we did not pay tribute to the life of Charles Hill, legendary art recovery detective, the dude who brought back the Munk, the dude who brought back our painting today, legend, former detective, Scotland Yard, he retired from that, he was a a detective for hire and has been involved, was involved with the the biggest cases in the world. So um, I cannot clearly do justice to the memory of the man. Um, there were some beautiful dedications online. I would I would ask everybody, if you go to show notes, um, you'll see a link to the Association for Research into Crimes Against Art, Art or ARCA, A-R-C-A. CEO Linda Albertson wrote a beautiful tribute on the ARCA Art Crime blog. So I'm, you know, there's, there's no comparison to it. And I, I recommend everybody go learn about the the man, the detective, but also the just the man himself, who just seemed like an absolutely wonderful man. Um, so on ourcrime.blog, um, we, I created a post celebrating the life and kind of showing what people in the arts community had to say. On the blog post, I have some of his quotes. Like, for example, right at the top, a masterpiece will tell you itself that it's a masterpiece. It jumps out at you. In this quote by Charles Hill, I find really touching and just to me shows a life well lived. He said, it's exhilarating to get what you're going for back. I can actually recover these things and feel as if I'm doing my bit for creation. Wow. Yes. Dang. Yeah. I mean, isn't that all any of us could possibly hope for doing our bit for creation? So goodbye, Charles Hill. 
Goodbye, Charlie. Goodbye, Charles Hill. Though we didn't know you personally, we read about your detective skills. <laughs> and you found lots of paintings. Was that inappropriate? No. I think you nailed it. <laughs> Was I the only one who found it tacky when Elton John just covered the Goodbye Norma Jean song when uh, Princess Diana died? Do you remember that? Of course. What? Did you find that tacky? Are, are we all? Do we? I think we all found it tacky, and we're just not talking about it. Is that right? Yeah, it, it seemed. Well, like if she was such, if she was such a good friend. Yeah, like why is he monetizing her death? Well, I don't there. think he monetized her death per se. No, did he donate the proceeds? He probably did, but he could have written an original song. I'm assuming that maybe yeah. leading up to whatever event, he decided to just repurpose that song. Yeah. Maybe Bernie Taupin was like on in the Maldives on vacation or something like that. Maybe it just it just like was his immediate reaction to it and he just couldn't help it and like it just came out that way i don't even like the song for uh for uh marilyn monroe very much either like i don't know she was more like a bonfire she wasn't really a candle i mean she was a kind of a broken person it's a real love actually moment where you repurpose that song and (laughs) i feel it in my fingers i feel it in my toes christmas is all around doing the bill nye hands you can't see this but he's doing arthritic bill nye hands the bill nye hands yeah Christmas is all around. <laughs> now that my Charles Hill tribute has gone awry with my antics, let's talk about the painting that Charles Hill himself said was the most beautiful masterpiece he's ever had in his hands. Tell us about the painting, Mara. Known as Woman Writing a Letter with Her Maid, circa 1670, while a maidservant gazes out of a window, her mistress writes an epistle. Vermeer's figures are often quiet and inactive, which contributes to the solemn and mysterious atmosphere of his paintings. On the floor in the foreground lie a red seal, a stick of sealing wax, and an object which is either a letter with a crumpled wrapper or a letter-writing manual, a standard aid for personal correspondence at the time. That'd be a weird thing to have on the floor. I'm going to go with crumpled piece of paper like she's (laughs) on her second draft. Yeah, in either case... The suggestion is that the objects have been discarded by the lady in some agitation. Let's play the game of what we think this painting means, because our opinion of what it means is just as valid as anyone's opinion for the last, what, 400 years or something like that? This is, for me, this is kind of the fun of the game. Like, what's the minimum amount of information we need to know in order to come to our own conclusions about this or any painting? And so it's usually the symbolism, right? Or... Like you mentioned before, the that might be a a, a, a letter writing guide, yes, or something like that on yep. the floor. Um, the painting in the background of the painting is finding of Moses in the bulrushes, the bulrushes, which I would just call bushes. So, <laughs> as in the story of Moses when he was sent down the river to be protected because all boys were going to be killed by the Pharaoh or something like that. Um, the book of Exodus recounts how during the captivity in Egypt of the Jewish people, the Pharaoh ordered every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And so this is the painting in the background of the Vermeer painting is finding Moses, uh, basically on the side of the river, pulling him out, out of, out of the river. So, okay, we know that. So that has some meaning of some kind. We know that the woman standing behind her is a maid. We know that the lady is writing a letter. We know that she has one on the ground. 
uh, I guess the other thing that's probably important to know is that the expectation of this, and I don't because of other paintings, is that the maid is waiting to deliver the letter that this woman is writing. So she's standing there looking a little bored, waiting for this to happen because it's taking some time. Right. And it's most likely that it is a love letter because apparently that was one of the themes in the letter writing paintings of the time that uh, that if a woman was writing a letter, that the expectation is that she was writing a love letter. So knowing that, just knowing that, what what, what do you think is going on here? Well, all I can think about is the fact this was used to pay for bread. So to me, it's a woman <laughs> writing to all of her creditors being like, I don't have cash for you. Would you take this painting? It looks like <laughs> the scene that I'm in right now. <laughs> this is me this writing painting. you a check. It's going to bounce, but I'm telling you, the painting that I'm in will cover it. I just got to kill some time here. By the time uh, this painting is done. By the time it's varnished, I'm ready to go out the door. You'll make some money off of it. Given how soap operatic uh, Vermeer's life is, I decided to turn this into a soap opera in my brain. What I think is happening here, and of course, all of you at home, feel free to play along. Go look at this painting and, and let, let us know what you think. Uh, I think that the lady is writing a love letter. But the look on her maid's face, she has a look on her face like she's excited to get out there. So the story that I have in my head is that the lady is writing a letter to her lover and the maid is going to deliver it. But the maid is equally excited to deliver the letter because she has a lover at the destination or on the way to the destination where this letter is to be delivered. Or maybe even more scandalously. <laughs> it's ma- the same man. It's the same man. That double... Wick Dipper. <laughs> oh my god. I gotta catch my breath. It is a very indicating gesture she's making, like she's um, anticipating something. I really like the light in the curtains where it's sunlit at the top and in shadow below, and then the black and white checkered floor, so geometric and makes it feel really modern. Yeah, nobody painted a curtain like Vermeer. Oh damn, look at those curtains. I thought it was interesting that I don't I don't think I've seen any Vermeer I mean there's only like 30 something Vermeer paintings I think 36 36 um and then maybe some uh ones that are disputed but every single one well maybe this is cuz he painted in his studio I guess every single one the lights coming in from the uh I guess the the right of the subject but to the left of the painter Yeah he probably had light in one direction and one window that was the right window to paint near and that's it. And that's the only light you're ever going to see from him. Mm-hmm. Even with the girl, uh, the girl with the earring, or no, the girl with girl the pearl, with pearl, or pearl earring, what was it called? Girl, girl with, with the pearl, pearl earring. Yeah, same thing, light coming from the left. Oh, here's another fun game. Which do you prefer? Vermeer's? Vermeer. You, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The the pearl earring over Mona Lisa? Mm-hmm. Pure, purely from a, as a, as a painter point of view? Aesthetically, yeah. We should have. We should have like portrait brackets, like Final Four. Ooh, maybe we can have Art Crime Podcast March Madness. Ooh. I think that's a brilliant idea. Do you think it matters how we, well, it matters how we seed things, but do you, does it matter like what kind of painting? Should it be like landscapes only or portraits only? Oh, I think we should do portraits. Just do portraits? Yeah. A portrait um, 
Art Madness. Mm-hmm. I like that. Maybe we just start with a sweet 16. Uh, let's talk about the crime. The owner of the painting at the time of the thefts was Sir Alfred Lane Bite, second baronet, born January 1903 in London, died in 1994 in Dublin. He was a British Conservative Party politician, art collector, philanthropist, and honorary Irish citizen. He acquired the collection from his uncle, British South African gold and diamond magnate, a founding partner of De Beers Mining Company, a supporter of British imperialism in South America. So his uncle was an Not OG great. of spreading all kinds of horrible capitalism. The second Alfred bought the 17th century estate Rustboro in 1950s, where he moved this art collection from his London home. So this family, uh, they got some cash. The first theft of Rustboro House occurred in 1974. Sometimes a heist is not just a heist, but also a political happening. That was the case when in 1974, members of the Irish Republican Army banded together to rob Rustborough House, the Irish home of Sir Alfred Bight. Sir Alfred and his wife were home on the night of April 26, 1974, when Rose Dugdale politely knocked at the door under the guise of asking for car assistance. When the butler's son opened the door, Dugdale and her boyfriend, Eddie Gallagher, and two other unnamed masked male accomplices forced their way in. They had guns. We were sitting in the library, my wife and I, playing the gramophone, said Sir Alfred. About ten past nine, the door burst open and three armed men brandishing pistols rushed in the room and told us to get down and lie down flat on the floor with with our heads down. I looked up at one of them, for which I got the reward of a blow with the butt of a pistol on my head, which brought about a little blood, but it wasn't serious. Bridget Rose Dugdale the daughter of British millionaire, her new boyfriend and two accomplices, bound and gagged and insulted the Bites, calling them capitalist pigs. And they swiped 19 important paintings, including a Gainsborough, a Goya, Rubens, Velasquez, and Vermeer. Did you say that the the woman who was part of the gang, mm-hmm. the, the, the prop at the door, she was the daughter of a, of a millionaire? Yes. Oh. And she was calling them a bunch of capitalist pigs? She was. Hmm. Okay, keep going. Yep. So at the time, they made off with about 8 million pounds in paintings. So what did the IRA want? The IRA sent a ransom note offering to exchange the stolen paintings for the release of Dolores and Marion Price, two sisters convicted of IRA bombings, who were on a hunger strike in Brixton Prison. Hmm. That kind of seems non-negotiable. Give us half a million dollars to fund the IRA. Yeah. And then let go of two of our bombers. Two convicted bombers. Yeah. Oof. How was that met? Yeah, nothing came of that. The Gardaí, Ireland's police force, started a nationwide hunt for the paintings. And on May 4th, so shortly after the theft, because that just happened at the end of April, May 4th, they raided a house rented by Dugdale in Glandora County Cork and discovered all 19 paintings. Dugdale was arrested under Section 30 of Offenses Against the State, and the next day she was charged in relation to a helicopter attack and the art theft. I'll get to the helicopter attack. 
So on June 25th, 74, she was sentenced to nine years imprisonment after pleading proudly incorruptibly guilty. So before the theft, in February of 1974, there was already a standing warrant for her arrest for her involvement in the IRA hijacking of a helicopter and using that helicopter to drop bombs in milk churns on a British police station in Northern Ireland. Holy moly. And charges to conspire, charges conspiring to smuggle arms. She was an active IRA member, a sympathizer, a team member. She had committed an earlier art crime with a previous boyfriend in 1973 at her own Devon familial estate, stealing paintings and silverware valued at 82,000 pounds, generating more funds for the IRA. She was stealing from her own family? Yes. I think her father was fairly supportive up to, of her up till that point, but obviously they had deep philosophical, political disagreements. <laughs> and she was like, I love you, but I hate everything you stand for. And her boyfriend, because man, was sentenced to a six years imprisonment. And because she was a woman, the judge was like, you're not going to do it again, little girl, pretty much, and sent her on her way. And she's like, oh, you want to bet? The judge dismissed her with a suspended sentence, and her reaction was, in finding me guilty, you have turned me from an intellectual recalcitrant into a freedom fighter. I know no finer title. And this is how I like to think of her. Because she was female, this is all you'll read about in this particular theft, because it seems like men can't believe a woman would be involved. Like, oh my god, it's a British millionaire, and like, she's She's just called names all the time. Like, there's no respect for, like, what she was trying to do. Like, it's the 60s. She's educated. Like, she went to Oxford, and even that was described as, well, she didn't, she didn't do very well. But, yes, she graduated. Like, so they disparage that. She goes to graduate school at Mount Holyoke in Massachusetts. She visits Cuba because it's the 60s, and, you know, she obviously has counterculture leanings. And then goes back to London, gets a PhD in econ, which is horrid. And still she's called like heiress, spoiled, debutante. Like they, all the articles fixate just on labeling her. And it's pretty clear she took up a cause. She she sounds like a mastermind. She doesn't sound like a go along, a go along gal with the bad boys. I don't know that she was the mastermind either because that's what Amore, that Isabella Stewart Gardner, security guy, he's making money off of her in this story. He never interviewed her. He wants to sell her as the mastermind to this whole plot. He's wanting to make her in something that maybe she was or maybe she wasn't. I can't really confirm or deny that she was a mastermind. Like, she was in for this cause, and she was giving money this cause because she could do that. The art collection itself was published as early as 1904. There is a published catalog of this, and it's online right now. You can just read the whole book. So it wasn't exactly private. You could go to the home. Like, yeah, she she came from this world, but was she the absolute mastermind? I don't know. I don't really care. <laughs> I don't think that's the point. And it wasn't like she had to case the house. Like you said, it was public knowledge that the, the these pieces of art were in this place. Yeah, like, Byte was a really rich person, you know, like, I think he was an easier target than people like to assume. And because she's a woman here, this Amari, Amori character is just making money off of her. And it's, I find it a little annoying considering he never even interviewed her and she is alive. Yeah, I, I just want to describe her as she describes herself. 
She was an intellectual turned freedom fighter. Uh, the end. She played a role in this theft. Maybe some of these were ideas. I don't know. But it was just so fixated on the fact that she was this rich woman taking part in anything. That was the important part. There wasn't a single article where they listed out what was actually stolen. Like, there's discrepancies in, like, the night that it happened, how many paintings, whether they were in her car, whether they were in the cottage. Like, the journalism is poor because it's just like, oh, it's a woman and she did it. And we don't have to really, like, do the journalism because we're just fixated on selling Right. So the journalism the journalism was poor, which which provides big loopholes for an author to decide that um they may want to craft a story that makes her into whatever they want yes. her to be for the sake of selling a book or making it more exciting because she was a female yeah, it freedom just fighter. Felt like it sounds like it sounds like the, the difference of like call, calling her like a uh, a female thief. Or a female yes. master, you know, my yeah. like somehow it's she like she was a freaking thief in a team IRA, <laughs> and it doesn't matter she was a woman. Right, right. She was wealthy and could assist with money. That's a thing, but like making it female is stupid to me. She was a freaking freedom fighter for Northern Ireland. So that is the first theft at Rustboro House. So that's the first. So that's the first theft at Rustboro House. They're returned. Days later. Are they stolen again from Rustboro House? Yes. Jesus. Yes. Rustboro House has been hit four times in the last 30 some years. 1986, an even more expensive robbery, taking over 30 million in paintings. The 1974 heist was so brazen and unthinkable that it is perhaps no surprise that when Rustboro House was robbed again 12 years later, 1986, Authorities initially suspected it was the IRA. It was not. It turned out the second breach was not the handiwork of rebels to the north, but rather a job pulled off by an infamous Irish gangster known as the General, Martin Cahill. Now, Martin Cahill has had movies made about his life. He is an OG. He is the Tony Soprano of Dublin. In May 1986... His gang of 13 thieves broke into the Irish mansion and managed to take 18 paintings in six minutes before vanishing with the loot. The general, Martin Cahill, was a crime boss who took his war to the state. He grew up very poor in the last remaining squalid tenement building in Dublin with 15 brothers and sisters. By the age of 12, he had already served a two-year sentence in juvenile detention. He loved planning a crime. For several weeks before robbing Rustboro House, he meticulously cased the estate. As one does. By making a number of visits to the house, paying the one-pound admission fee, he memorized the building layout and mapped escape routes, noting the closest police station was about 20 miles away. I'd like to question the docent at the house on this one. Yeah. Did, Did you, you see anything see strange? Man? Yeah. Well, there was a guy with a clipboard. Uh, <laughs> he had some graph paper. Yeah, staring at the exits all the time. Very interested in exits. He asked me, uh, you know, if there were any dogs or other security on site. <laughs> yeah. It just seemed like a normal question. We get that from time to time. <laughs> Is Joe the only night watchman? Good to know. He likes chocolates and, and you know, bergamot tea. And He did ask the mileage to the nearest no. police station. Yes. But I thought maybe he just wanted to, I don't know, visit the police station yeah, after, he had after some the tour? business with them. Maybe he'd go have a chat. It all seemed rather up and up. Okay, the general's crew cut through a side window to set off the home's alarm system, which was installed after the 1974 robbery. And then they retreated half a mile away to wait 
so they purposely set off the alarm. The cops showed up, disabled the alarms, took a look around, had a spot of tea, and then left when they didn't see any evidence of anyone lurking about. It was then that Cahill's gang returned and stole 18 paintings in six minutes without being detected. The next day, seven of the paintings were discovered abandoned near the mansion by some boys on a fishing expedition. But for the remaining 11, their saga was just beginning. Initially, there was no link to Cahill as the criminal behind the theft. But like many gangsters who suddenly discover the value of fine art and assume they've stumbled on the quick payday, Cahill had no idea how difficult it would be to offload his famous loot. His crew grew to believe that the paintings were a jinx. At the time of his stealing the paintings, he had no idea how to dispose of them, but through a process of trial and error, he explored all possibilities, starting from the totally naive point of trying to sell it on the open market for its true value. He moved to selling it on the black market, said a member of Scotland Yard's Art Antique Squad. Several paintings had been recovered before the Guardie could link Cahill to the crimes, but Cahill had a way of drawing their attention. In 1987, in an act of defiance against the Gardee for pursuing him for Respiro thefts, Cahill broke into the offices for public, public prosecutions. So it's like he broke into the DA's office who was investigating him. He stole a number of files, including on the death of his brother. And these files would have been criminal currency in the underworld and uh, crimes about himself as well. The number of files he stole has never been made public. Now Charlie Hill enters the scene. Charlie Hill became involved with Respiro theft after the Metropolitan Police offered their assistance to help recover the masterpieces. One painting was intercepted in Turkey. Another six were discovered in the early 90s, stashed in homes and businesses around London. But four works continued to elude the authorities before they got their big break. In an effort to finally make a profit from his stolen art, Cahill made a deal with a Belgian diamond dealer. He would hand over the remaining masterpieces as collateral for a loan, with which he would invest in a supply of drugs. Once he had recouped the money on the streets, he would pay the diamond dealer back, resume possessions of the paintings, and try to repeat the scheme. But the diamond dealer undercut him and decided to try to sell the paintings on his own. The police orchestrated a sting, and Hill, Charlie Hill, went undercover as an interested art buyer in 1993. He met the criminals in a parking lot in an airport in Belgium, where the four paintings were stashed in the trunk of a car. They were successfully recovered, including the Vermeer and Goya. Charlie Hill recounted, I was taken to a multi-story car park in Antwerp by a gangster and had to mask my emotions as I unwrapped the painting. It's the greatest masterpiece I've had the pleasure to hold. When we covered the theft and recovery of the monk of Monks the Scream, Charles Hill was the investigator there, and you talked about um, the fact that he was posing as a representative of the Getty Museum in Europe. And like, what did the Getty Museum think about that? Yeah, I found two. I found two different places where Charles Hill said that um, he used that same character. So, quote: "The character I came up with was Chris Roberts. Name <laughs> the character." <laughs> was a slightly dodgy mid-Atlantic accented art dealer who was doing some buying for the Getty Museum in Europe, said Hill. <laughs> and then he said this again. He explained that sometime in 1983, he put on a mid-Atlantic accent and posed as an art dealer who had Arab buyers lined up for the Vermeer. That is Vermeer's lady, uh, lady mm -hmm. writing a letter with her maid. So I just love that he had this alter ego 
And I almost wish somebody at some point in Charles Hill's life like asked him to interview him as if he's that person. <laughs> yeah. See him get into character. Yeah. Hear the Mid Atlantic oh, accent. That would have been funny. I know. That was yeah. so great. Well, Sir Alfred Bite had um before the Vermeer and Goya were even recovered, he had officially donated those to the National Gallery in Dublin. So those went back to the National Gallery at that point, not to Rustboro. Thank God. Yeah, because Rustboro would be robbed two more times. Um, but everything has been recovered. I think forty paintings have been have been robbed, come and gone over time, and only two are still out there. And the general, Martin Cahill, you know, movies made about this man, he was gunned down at a checkpoint while driving in in his hometown in 1994. Yeah, he was just a criminal in it for the money, not in it for politics. And he ran afoul of the IRA, and they gunned him down in 1994. One of the detectives involved in the Cahill robbery of the Vermeer described the Vermeer as Ireland's most valuable painting, and they really couldn't even put a monetary value on it. So it was with much relief. It was found and then returned to an institution where you can go visit it in Dublin today. And those are my two Vermeer crimes. Huzzah! Thanks to all of our listeners. It is very exciting each week to see people listening to all of our episodes. Thank you, thank you. Finding new listeners around the world. It is very exciting, and we will keep doing this as long as we humanly can. And kind of surprising. And we really appreciate it. As always, if you want to uh, check out our toots and grams, you can go to at Art Crime Pod on both the tweets and the grams. And um, otherwise, see us at artcrime.blog. Until next time. 